This is Speaking of Faith's Unheard Cuts. I'm Krista Tippett. You're listening to my unedited conversation with Muslim policy expert Vali Nasser. I spoke with him using a broadcast-quality telephone connection on August 13, 2008. I was in the studios of American Public Media in St. Paul, Minnesota, and he was in the studios of National Public Radio in Washington, D.C., This interview was included in our program, The Sunni-Shia Divide and the Future of Islam. It was originally podcast in November 2008. Download the MP3 of the produced show at speakingoffaith.org. Hello, Vali Nasser here. Hello, it's Krista Tippett. Hello, how are you? Good. Um, I I don't think we really met. I was at I was moderating a morning panel at that Council on Foreign Relations event a couple of weeks ago, but I sat around the table at your small group event and uh All right. Yeah. Yes, that's what I gathered from the email, but <laughs> from my uh, I'm sorry we didn't get a chance to yeah, talk. Yeah. Well, that's all right. We're talking now. Um you know what I I are, I don't know if you're familiar with my program. Um I I have heard it actually. Okay. I was just listening to the program you had the other day on the uh, with with the author on China. Oh, right. About May modernity. Yes. Yes. Right. And right. I and I thought that that uh, verbatim is true of the Muslim world. So yes. I found it a very fascinating uh, um Some very of fascinating those same discussion. dynamics. Great. Yeah, and that's quite similar actually to what I what I want to do with you. And I've interviewed uh, many Muslim voices across mm-hmm. the years, uh, di- diverse voices, including your father. Uh-huh, a couple okay, of years ago, good. yeah. Um, um, so, but I, I, uh, and I think uh, you know we we keep revisiting the, these issues. Um, uh, recent, I think the most recent program we've had with an Islamic voice was uh, recently with Ed Hussein, who's a British Muslim. Do mm-hmm. you know his book? Yes, um, I would know him by reputation. Yes, and that was very interesting. And is what's important to me is to help my listeners have as large. <coughs> and complex a view as possible of this subject sure. uh, because it's in so many of the headlines and the news, but we don't, people don't have the nuance um, or the history to get it, um, even though they feel affected by it. And so that's really just what I want to talk to you about. That's what I, I found so wonderful about that, that uh, just that free-flowing conversation in New York was, um, you know, inner, what I would call inner Islamic dynamics and how religious history and identity um, figure into Things people know are happening in Iraq, Iran, Pakistan. And also what I'd like to talk to you about, um, and, you know, we'll get to this as we keep going, is, um, you know, as the whatever's happening in Iraq continues and Mm -hmm. the U.S. presence there continues to evolve, Mm -hmm. um, how that has affected internal dynamics within Islam and the relationship of sort of different traditions and regional powers to one another. That's what we were talking about that day. So I'll... uh, We'll just let's just it's not live and we'll just have a um, a real conversation and and we can start any time if you're ready. You okay? I'm ready. Okay. <laughs> and I'd like to start um, just a little bit. This is where I start all my conversations. Just a little bit about you personally. Mm-hmm. You were born in Tehran. Is that right? Uh, yes, I was born in Tehran. Uh-huh. I uh, lived in Iran until I was about 15, oh. after which uh, I went to school in England, uh, although I visited Iran uh, periodically while in England. And then uh, the Iranian Revolution happened in 1979. I was uh, right at the time of um, going to university. Mm-hmm. Uh, my family left. Uh, we were... 
um, exiles of the revolution in a sort of a, a Dr. Jivago-esque uh, <laughs> um, escape from Iran. Right. Uh, we settled in the United States. I went to Tufts University and then the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy, uh, also at Tufts. And then I got my Ph.D. in political science with focus on political Islam and the role of Islam in politics uh, from MIT. Right. Uh, your um, father was an important Islamic philosopher and thinker in pre-revolutionary mm-hmm. Iran and is still an important Islamic philosopher and thinker now uh, based in the United States. And um, you, like he, you, you're not just Shia, but of notable uh, lineage. You are descended from the imams, right, and carry the title Sayyid. That's correct. Mm-hmm. Uh, in in uh, among the Shias, uh, uh, lineage from Prophet Muhammad matters more uh, because it means that uh, you trace your line to the Shia Imams, to the Shia saints, whom the Shias uh, um, venerate greatly and view uh, to have been the legitimate heirs to the Prophet. You do have uh, people in the Sunni world also who claim descent from the Prophet. For instance, most notably the kings of Morocco and right. Jordan. Right. But uh, in the Sunni world, uh, it's not given quite the same importance as it has uh, in the Shia world. And, I mean, as you say, you've spent now over half your life in um, outside Iran, but, um, or, I mean, you've traveled a great deal there and, and in other parts of the world. But I just wonder, I mean, you were born in 1960, same year I was born, mm-hmm. and I spent some of my 20s in divided Europe, which is kind of a, all those dynamics have vanished. And I, I wonder if it has surprised you and been kind of personally dramatic that just in these last years, this part of the world and this tradition that's so much a part of your identity has come into the forefront of, of world affairs. Yes, it has. I mean, it, it, the Middle East uh, has been a source of uh, concern for the United States for many years, particularly mm-hmm. at least since the Iranian Revolution. And the issue of Islam first uh, came to the fore uh, for American public and decision makers at that time. And since then, it's just never gone down. And the the U.S. has uh, uh, tried to uh, support governments that can serve as a bulwark against Islam, has tried to uh, engage at other times, for instance, during the time of uh, President Jimmy Carter. Uh, Even the United States has gone to other issues like democratization in Latin America, Eastern Europe, uh, Asia, uh, the boom years of the 1990s. But it keeps coming back to the uh, problems of the Muslim world and problems of the Middle East. Mm. And I think every time a crisis or a series of crises brings the U.S. back to this problem, there is a reminder in public thinking in America as well as in Washington thinking that this is this problem doesn't go away, that the United States really doesn't know why there is a problem and how to solve it. And each time it goes back to it, it seems that just the, prob- the same problem has just got bigger and more uh, unmanageable. Right. And I think periodically we, we lay the blame on Islam, we lay the blame on dictators, we lay the blame on all sorts of things. And uh, we also come up with all kinds of solutions, uh, everything from promoting democracy to promoting war to promoting dictatorship to promoting Islamic reformation, hoping that there be a Martin Luther. Right. <laughs> but end of the day, uh, we're still at a loss. And the uh, Bush administration, after eight years of uh, sort of intellectual and ideological bonanza of coming up with all kinds of ways to fix the ills of the Muslim world, 
uh, is leaving office uh, having really accomplished nothing. Mm-hmm. Because uh, it, in all this period, we, we the, West, the United States government, but also I think to a large extent American culture, I mean, even thought leaders and citizens haven't really gained a core understanding um, of the dynamics there. Um, so, I mean, that's what I want to try to trace with you. I would, I would like to start, I, I heard in the news recently that that there's been a decision in the government, in the U.S. government, to stop talking about the war on terror and speak instead about counterterrorism. And I, I thought of that in the context of something you said when we met at the Council on Foreign Relations a couple of weeks ago, mm-hmm. which was that um, the United, after September 11, 2001, the United States um, could have responded, sort of framed the response to that in terms of a, uh, of a clash of civilizations, a war on terror, almost a war of one power against another power. And you said, you know, another way to have viewed that might have been to treat al-Qaeda like a fringe terrorist group, not lacking in danger, you know, needing to be addressed, mm-hmm. but just like the terrorist cells um, that attacked Western civilization in their way in Europe in the 1970s. That's a pretty striking analogy t- for me. Uh, yes, I do think it would have it would have uh, uh, been of historically great, of great importance not for the, not only for the United States but also for the Muslim world because mm-hmm. I think the Bush administration took the decision to make Al Qaeda more than what it is, which is a group of violent terrorists, and and tr- and uh, make them into the face of Islam, mm-hmm. the vanguard force in a, in a global religious uh, uh, civilization. It made them much more important uh, than, than they really were. And it reduced everything about the Muslim world into what they think uh, about uh, Al-Qaeda. A good Muslim uh, right, uh, is right. one who condemns Al-Qaeda. A bad Muslim is one who sympathizes with Al-Qaeda. Everything about the Muslim world came down to uh, where does it stand on this barometer of uh, Al-Qaeda? And I think that was a mistake. As I mentioned, it made Al-Qaeda far more important. It also alienated a vast part of the Muslim world, which just simply didn't think it, it could fit into this uh, binary vision, in this black and white vision, right. that if you're not with us, then you're against us. Well, I'm not with you, not for reasons that you don't that you may think, but then I guess I'm against you. Mm-hmm. And uh, we saw a surge in anti-Americanism. We saw a drainage of American political capital in the Muslim world. We saw that every policy we wanted to uh, pursue in the Muslim world, which didn't have to do with al-Qaeda, nevertheless was impacted by this discourse that the Bush administration started. But I also think that you know the, the, the problematic of this approach uh, goes beyond the Bush administration. I think the United States, since the Iranian Revolution of 1979, is conflicted over two things: what to do with specific troubles that happen on the ground. For instance, you know there may be wars in between Russia and Georgia, between uh, you know China and Vietnam, right. between any number of countries. There's always going to be crises. And the United States has to have a way of dealing with individual crises in the Muslim world. So that's one set of problems. But the United States always tends to conflate this into what to do with the global civilization. Okay. And, and as a result, it always comes up with this idea that somehow uh, it, it, it can fast track Islam from where it is into some idyllic, secular, moderate, you know, reformed position mm-hmm that then would uh, solve all of these other uh, problems. 
and uh, you know this and and this sort of uh, confusion between the grand historical narrative of where is Islam come from and where is it going as a as a world civilization with 1.4 billion peoples with specific problems that emerge on the ground between countries uh, with terrorist organizations etc i think has been um, has been at the at the core of the problem we're talking about so you know it has it has seemed to me in in hindsight as i've thought about this these last years that and and as you you write about this a lot this there is an in, an an internal this is an incredibly cathartic moment internally for islam and it's it's an important moment that's going to go on for generations um and other traditions have had these these moments you know the christian reformation took hundreds of years resolving itself um but and it wasn't a, and and also it wasn't a liberal process no much of the liberal um, you know democratic capitalist uh, consequences of protestantism were really unintended consequences right, right right it is not as if martin luther or calvin actually set out to create modernity as we know it no in fact the calvin's geneva was a horrible place yes it uh, in many ways it's much more like the taliban state that yes. we so fear a theocracy uh, a theocracy <laughs> a of the worst T. kind yes exactly yes and um, and wars and, uh, there were, were wars for generations absolutely decades. absolutely mm-hmm. so i mean uh, you know i think uh, just to add to what you're saying mm-hmm. is that uh, first of all there is no patience of trying to think about reform in Islam as a 400 year process no. uh, so we want the muslims to get to where we the united states is on the rapid uh, we're looking desperately for for a martin luther who would not really take us through the entire protestant mm-hmm. uh, revolution but merely uh, get us to uh, protestantism's end point skipping all of the calvinist you know uh, medieval part as well skipping the 30 years war uh, skipping the 30 years war yeah. skipping calvin's geneva skipping uh, you know the puritanism mm-hmm. of northern europe skipping the uh, all of the sort of um, prudishness that existed in in in, in parts of protestant world uh, skip all of that and arrive at the end point of uh, protestantism and i and and that's uh, even if the muslims were to bite into Uh, the entire uh, European historical uh, narrative. Uh, still, there is this problem of uh, absence of patience with uh, w- w- with getting there. Mm-hmm. And 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 I mean, my suspicion is that this that this historic moment within Islam was already underway, and yet, kind of tragically, it was brought into the imagination of people. In the West, let's say, in Washington on September 11th, 2001, in a way that it hadn't been before, and for Western citizens, for non-Muslims, um, and this is kind of this is it has been a very this has been a bad convergence in terms of the way people have the way policymakers and citizens have reacted to it and understood it. Does that make, does that make sense? Yes, it does. And I, actually, the West on, has, has understood everything uh, within the Muslim world as if it's always about an intellectual ideological conflict. Mm-hmm. So that uh, what what we're seeing in Islam is a battle between extremists and moderates. Right. It's between those who want to change religion and those who want to go back to seventh century. What I think Washington and many Western observers, that includes a lot of Western intellectuals as well, uh, misunderstand is that intellectual 
and ideological and theological debates never happen in a vacuum. They always happen because something has happening in the real world. If we were right, to take right. the example of Catholicism, there would not have been a liberation theology movement, a, a sort of mix of Marxism, populism, and Catholicism, had there not been poverty and uh, injustice and dictatorship in Latin America. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the Muslim world, this whole issue of extremism and its uh, popularity is not because there was some uh, you know, ideological, theological debating society and a debate in closed doors and they won the debates on the merits of their argument and the power of their intellect. Somewhere along the line, the extremists proved uh, uh, that they are quite capable of uh, addressing the frustrations of the Muslim world and play very well in the political arena. Mm-hmm. And the, this the human, Af- the frustrations that happen at that human level, right? At the human level and mm-hmm. are very secular. In other right, words, Muslims right. are losing wars. Um, they are not doing well politically. And here is here you have a case as in Afghanistan where uh, these jihadi extremists defeat a superpower. Right. And they o- overnight essentially become uh, heroic nationalist liberation fighters where the West misunderstands the influence and power of the extremists is, not, is that they're not popular just because of theology. In fact, their theology is extremely simplistic and poor. It is because they somehow uh, address the nationalist uh, and, and the liberationist desires of the, of, of the masses. Uh, in all of its discussions about the Muslim world, the Bush administration in the past seven years has completely factored out nationalism. And mm-hmm. I always find that to be quite amazing, that at a time when Americans themselves have become so fiercely nationalistic, right. they assume that uh, nationalism has no role in Iraq, in Iran, and in the Muslim world. Or, or is and irrational under- and should be discounted, right? I mean, I uh, think it's irrational and should it's be discounted. Yeah. And, and they don't understand that a lot of the, uh, of the appeal of the extremists is because of uh, the fact that uh, they do uh, appeal to that uh, sense of nationalism, sense of desire to uh, liberate the, uh, themselves from foreign control, etc. Mm-hmm. If you were to wash away the, the sort of the theological gloss of a lot of what bin Laden and people like him say, or say the insurgents or al-Qaeda in Iraq say, what you're left with is something that's very similar to what uh, third world revolutionary anti-imperialist movements of the third world were saying in the 1960s and 70s. Okay. Fight against global superpowers, fight against colonialism, fight for cultural liberation, fight for political liberation. I mean, th- this, is, uh, this is not new to the third world, except uh, it used to be Marxist and secular. Now it is uh, Islamic and extremist and jihadist. Is it still more political and secular, in fact, in in essence, uh, than it is religious? I think it's not separable easily. There mm-hmm. are those who, who, who would find uh, um, certain appeal in the Islamic coloring and Islamic argument of extremism. But there are a lot, plenty of people who find tremendous appeal not in what extremists say religiously, but with extremists say and do politically. When 9-11 happened, 
the West uh, was very quick to say that a lot of the Muslim world sympathizes or supports uh, al-Qaeda. That was not quite true. Uh, polls that were taken in many countries in the Muslim world, for instance, in Saudi Arabia, showed that there was very little sympathy for what bin Laden said religiously. He was in single digits. Hmm. Hmm. But when it came to what bin Laden was saying about the Palestinian issue, about U.S. troops in um, uh, the kingdom, about U.S. policy towards the Muslim world, about freeing the Muslim world from imperialism, then the support jumped into 70s, 80s, 90s percentiles. Hmm. So the Muslims were, majority of the Muslims are able to distinguish between um, the political appeal of extremism and the religious appeal of extremism. And they are not uh, very persuaded by what the extremists say religiously, but they're quite persuaded by what the extremists represent politically. And I think the Bush administration... As rhetoric of war on terror, of trying to reduce everything into extremism uh, versus uh, moderation, basically uh, lumped uh, the those who really uh, uh, support extremists religiously and those who simply are unhappy with the way things are and see extremism as a way of fighting the current status quo, it sort of helped lump them all together. And that only benefited the extremists. And it seems to me also that a problem in the perspective people bring to this, again, in the West, is that we've tended, and I think um, in terms of our policies, to analyze this as extremism that is it that is focused on attacking the west right this clash of civilizations idea when in fact um and this is very much what you are always writing about and analyzing um this is first and foremost a, a conflict within islam among muslims there are many more muslims dying um on the front line of this crisis between extremism and moderation than you know, then you have these very dramatic attacks, um, isolated attacks in places like New York or London. Um, and I'd like, and you know, I'd like for us to try to delve into that and, and understand that. Now, a lot of times these days when people talk about this, they talk in terms of the Shia-Sunni divide, and I think we're also tran- transposing that from the situation that we're seeing in Iraq. Um, and I want to just start at a pretty basic level. Well, I, I mean, I guess I want to ask you this large question, first of all. I mean, is the Sunni, is the co- conflict between Sunni and Shia um, a cause of this um, this crisis for the soul of Islam, as I think you've put it? Or or is it a symptom? Um, and and also, I think it's, I mean, you know, to, to what extent is it influenced by much more than, than religion, uh, by political and, you know, economic realities. Just before answering this sort of sectarian issue, Mm -hmm. (coughs) I would like to sort of highlight the point you made about uh, who actually suffers. Uh, It is true that even though um, this sort of uh, uh, extremist uh, rhetoric is directed against the West and terrorism happen in Madrid, New York or London, that still it's the majority of the Muslims who suffer. This is also true of the secular anti-Western ideologies of Marxism-Leninism. Uh, all the way from the 1920s on. They were anti-capitalist, they were anti-Western, 
but over the years, many more of their own third right. world the populations died. The people who suffered died. were them, right, okay. There were the Chinese mm-hmm. who died in the Cultural Revolution. There were the Russians who died in the gulags. Right. And even terrorist acts that were carried out by, uh, by you know, Argentinian, Vietnamese, Cambodian, uh, and other uh, uh, Marxist organizations tended to kill a lot more locals. And on and off, there was mm-hmm. an American who was assassinated in Athens or in, uh, or in uh, Montevideo. Right. So in that sense, uh, you know, it, 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 is, it, is, it is still the same, uh, the same kind of a problem. The That's victims not to tend to be internal. To the... Well, the, it's not to discount the, the power of posturing against the West, but, but the reality is that the battles unfold uh, in, within, within, the, within the places where uh, this posturing happens. In other words, most of the battles are happening in Pakistan, Afghanistan, Iraq. Uh, that's where most of the killing and suffering happens, just as the, during Marxism-Leninism it happened in China, Russia, etc. Right. Now, you know, in some ways, um, you could say that uh, ever since the 1979, when the Iranian revolution happened, Islam came to the forefront of Muslim politics, uh, not just in terms of promoting a, 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 a virtuous uh, religious state for the Muslims, but it came to the forefront of Muslims' uh, talk about nationalism, liberation, confrontation with the West, getting autonomy, uh, get, uh, uh, exorcising the Muslim world from uh, uh, its uh, demons of uh, of um, of weakness and being colonized, etc. And the more emphasis there is on Islam, the more it brings uh, to the fore. Well, after all, who really speaks for Islam? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In a in a in a civilization that you know, unlike India, where you know all the Hindus live on one subcontinent, the Muslim world is extremely diverse. It runs from the Pacific. Uh, to the Atlantic, from, you know, the steppes of Central Asia to sub-Saharan Africa. It has many cultural zones. Um, you know, the, in, in the West, we think, okay, the battle is only along the lines of, is it the extremists or is it the moderates? Is it the Muslims that we don't like versus the Muslims that we like? Right. But that's uh, one way, that's one way of answering who will dominate the Muslim world. The, the one we missed is that the other is uh, that the, Islam as a religion, particularly in the Middle East, in the heartland of the Middle East, is divided between two important sects, which may have the same kind of attitudes towards the West. In other words, Iran's Islamic Republic can be anti-American, so can Al-Qaeda's extremists. But, uh, but they disagree about uh, what is Islamic law, how do you practice it, uh, what is the ethos of the faith? And uh, the, some of these differences may appear quite trivial from afar, but up close, they are as significant as what separates the Eastern Church from the Western Church in Christianity, mm-hmm. or the various Protestant denominations, or Protestantism from Catholicism. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, in, in, in a world when religion becomes so important, the differences within religion will become also important. So it was unavoidable that when, as the Muslim world began to become more pious and began to look to Islam increasingly as the most important way of expressing its political will and its political attitudes towards the West, the fundamental question of who speaks for Islam, what is the right Islam, was going to come uh, to the forefront. 
this was already there when the Iranian revolution happened because Iranian revolution was led by a Shia cleric, Ayatollah Khomeini. Even though Khomeini tried to uh, sort of um, sidestep this issue and not shed much light on the fact that uh, he, he was a Shia by origin, uh, nevertheless, his appearance as a Shia cleric, the fact that he was Iranian, the fact that uh, some of his rhetoric appeal, uh, was very Shia in its tone and appealed to Shias in the Arab world and Pakistan and India and Afghanistan brought the sectarian issue to the forefront. And there were sectarian battles that unfolded in Pakistan, in um, uh, India. They became quite violent in the 1980s and 90s, even though we didn't take note of it. There was uh, sectarianism was all over uh, Saudi-Iranian rivalry at the, at the governmental level right. as uh, uh, it unfolded in the 1980s and 90s. But, you know, we weren't paying attention to that battle within Islam. Right. And it, so how we, would we you... We were only paying attention to the moderate versus extremist one. And, you know, I think that this Protestant Catholic or Eastern Church versus Western Church analogy... Um, is excellent, although in American culture where things, where these divisions are not so sharp or people are, are not as steeped in the tradition of their childhood and not aware of it. I mean, I think it really works if you if people can think back 50 years ago or 100 years ago. Um, you know, well, even where, when I came, even yeah. when, I was, when I was a student in the United States, I remember uh, the previous pope, John Paul II, came to the United States. And for the first time, he went to the South. I don't remember where. Mm-hmm. And I remember watching on television, the streets were deserted. Nobody came out to uh, uh, greet him. And there was this person standing on a sidewalk with a, with, a pla- with a placard in his hand which said, Antichrist, go home. Right, right. And therefore, uh, you, you know, obviously, uh, you know, things don't matter enough here for people to be killing one another. But, uh, you know, if a Muslim is sitting in Cairo uh, and looking at... Uh, you know, what is really the big difference between Catholicism and Protestantism? You probably won't get it. Uh, but, you know, you come up close and, and, and these differences become quite meaningful. So, I mean, just talk to me a little bit about how you would characterize some of the differences between Sunni Islam and, uh, and Shia Islam. Well, there are two differences. Let me put it this way. Mm-hmm. Uh, first of all, there are theological differences. But there are, then there are differences that are written in, um, in basically identity and fact. For instance, uh, you know, uh, many, many years ago when, you know, Boston was dominated by uh, Protestant English uh, establishment and you gradually had an influx of Irish Catholics who came uh, to Boston, you had a very clear sense of uh, a difference, that, the, that right. the Catholic Church belonged to the Irish and belonged to the poor, and the Protestant churches represented uh, uh, the, the Anglo-Saxon establishment in, in, in the city. Now, the, the, the differences were not so much theological as they reflected the fundamental identity division in Boston, mm-hmm. which is the Catholics, uh, the, the Irish Socioeconomic and ethnic. It's socioeconomic. Mm-hmm. If we go to mm-hmm. Northern Ireland today, you know, IRA fighters may go to church, may not go to church. I don't think they're really concerned with liturgy and what the Vatican says. Right. Uh, uh, Catholicism is not faith, it's who they are. 
It defines what side of the tracks they were born. Okay. Uh, you know, who they are, what share of the wealth they get. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Yugoslavia, you know, Muslims, Serbs, Croats, none of them may actually practice religion. Mm-hmm. Uh, Muslim, Orthodox, and Catholic is, is who they are. And you have that in the Muslim world as well. I mean, uh, in, in, in Lebanon or Iraq or uh, in Pakistan, uh, a Shia is not a Shia Sunni difference. It's not necessarily theological. It is who you are. So the Shia in Pakistan are like the, uh, are like the Catholic Irish of Boston. Okay. Uh, or in Iraq, they were like the Catholic Irish of Boston. Uh, they were not the in crowd. They were the out crowd. And then above this, you obviously have the theological difference. And the major difference is the following, that the Shias believed that uh, when the Prophet Muhammad died, uh, uh, that the, uh, his legitimate successors was his uh, son-in-law and cousin, uh, Ali, who was buried in the shrine in Najaf, and that the God had willed that the charisma of the Prophet would run through his bloodline and his bloodline would be the legitimate leaders of the community. So you could only have true Islamic leadership if the family of the Prophet uh, ruled so, so long as one was available to rule because the Shias also believed that the 12th Imam, as they call it, the 12th descendant, went into occultation. And even though he's the lord of the age uh, in, in, absen- in, in, in absence being in the other world, uh, he will only come back at the end of time and you will have true Islamic government again when he returns. The Sunnis, uh, uh, essentially, who became the majority and whose writ ultimately carried, uh, believe that the, the most uh, suitable of the companions of the Prophet uh, would be chosen by the early Muslim community and uh, he would be uh, the leader. And uh, from that uh, uh, Disagreement over succession, over the years, the two faiths evolved uh, very differently. They have a different historical experience. Uh, The the Shia experience is much more like uh, Jewish-Christian history. They suffered. They were persecuted. um, Their leaders were killed by the caliphs in Baghdad. Uh, they, They largely developed a minority mentality. The Sunnis were immediately triumphant, successful. Uh, and then the, the two communities developed a very different ethos of Islam, and they practiced the faith differently. Right. I mean, they there's agree- a very different piety. <coughs> and, uh, I mean, for example, Shia Islam has a much more hierarchical, I mean, a very different development of, of authority, right? And, and ritual. They have a very different and- de- development of authority because the Shia clerics uh, essentially are, um, in the absence of the hidden imam, are essentially his representatives. Okay. And uh, also, like, minority Catholic communities of Eastern Europe or minority Jewish communities of Eastern Europe, these kind of minority communities tend to gravitate around the religious leaders. Whereas in the Sunni world, it was the sultans and the caliphs who really carried the political authority and, and, and protected the community. The clerics were dependent on them. So the Shia esta- religious establishment is much uh, closer to the, to the Vatican, whereas uh, the, pro- uh, the Sunni uh, religious establishment is much more like the Protestant pastors and, and clerics. They're more of functionaries rather than carrying a sort of uh, political religious charisma that, that allows them to lord over their uh, community. Uh, and, and the Shias are, uh, at the popular level, believe in visitation of shrines, 
They believe that in saint worship, they believe that saints can be intermediaries between man and God. I would say a Shia would approach the shrine of Karbala or Najaf in the same way as a Catholic would approach the Lourdes in France or the uh, Fatima in Portugal or the Virgin of Guadalupe in Mexico. They believe that, you know, shrines of their saints are places of grace, places where, uh, you know, uh, prayers would be would be responded to. But even even, you know, nowadays in the Muslim world is very typical. Uh, everybody in the Muslim world wants to deny that this sectarianism exists. And they say, no, no, you know, Shias and Sunnis agree over 90 percent of Islam. <laughs> but how they interpret that 90 percent is quite different. The Shias and Sunnis both accept the Quran and follow the Quran. But if you put two pages of the Quran next to each other, the Shia and Sunni commentary on it hmm. is vastly different. Hmm. Interesting. And then, you know, they, 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 they practice Islam slightly different. They um, even stand at prayers slightly different. Mm-hmm. The Shias have their own school of law. And, you know, nowadays when there is always talk of Shia-Sunni harmony, uh, the Grand Ayatollah Sistani in Iraq, you know, had a very clear, simple stipulation that talk of religious unity and religious understanding is fine, but the real test for the Shias is that the Shia school of law should be accepted by Sunnis as a legitimate fifth school. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, and after all, Islam is a religion of law. And, and ultimately, you know, you're not a Muslim by faith. You're always Muslim by practice. Right. right. And therefore, the differences between Shia law and Sunni law means that on an everyday basis, uh, you follow a different, uh, you know, uh, uh, family law, you follow a different uh, um, commercial law, you follow a different uh, set of practices that defines you on an everyday basis as to who you are. If that's something that's been important to me to understand um, and also to sometimes communicate to others that Islam is really not not a faith of... You can't even talk about it in terms of what you believe, the way Christians talk about what they believe, that it is about daily lived piety which underscores, you know, what you're saying here. Well, you know, look at it this way. It's very easy to become a Muslim. All you have to say is that la ilaha illallah, Muhammad and Rasulullah. Uh, there is no God but God and Muhammad is his prophet. That's mm-hmm. all it takes for you to That's the confession. convert to Islam. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But then, uh, then the, re- the rest is practice. Whereas in Christianity, say, you have to go through an entire uh, process of... Um, of um, uh, learning and education uh, of of what faith includes, mm-hmm. uh, and then once you once you have sort of been indoctrinated in what faith includes, there's not much you need to do, <laughs> other than confession and going to church. Mm-hmm. And Islam, in that sense, is much more like uh, Judaism, where uh, it, it is not an orthodoxy, as is the case with Christianity. It's really an orthopraxy. Mm-hmm. It's about proper practice, not proper belief. That's not what defines a Muslim. Right. So um, one crucible of um, Sunni-Shia conflict right now is what's happening on the ground in Iraq. That's a place where a lot of um, American attention is focused. And, you know, again, I, I want to ask the question this way. I mean, I've, heard, I've encountered people who have said to me, you know, if, we, if I could only understand uh, the differences between Sunni and Shia or this conflict, then I would understand the violence that's unfolding there. I mean, I don't want to ask you, is this what we see as sectarian conflict a cause of the current tor- turmoil or is it a symptom of 
what's happened uh, there the last few years? Well, you know, Iraq uh, was was a sectarian state. Uh, There's no two ways about it. The Arab world uh, denies that. Many Iraqis deny that. But but, uh, denial in politics is not a good thing. Historical (laughs) denial of reality is not a good thing. Mm. And, uh, you know, the reality is that Iraq, even when it was put together by the British, uh, they understood that they were giving the power in that country to a minority Sunni uh, uh, population. In fact, they were so aware of this that they included the Kurds in Iraq to dilute the Shia numbers. Mm. And Iraq uh, generally uh, was 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 a minority state. The Shias did better in its earlier decades. But end of the day, the majority population in Iraq did not have access to power. It's become a common refrain these days to say, well, you know, under Saddam, there were Shias in government and there were Shia-Sunni intermarriages and Shias did well in Iraq. Yes, but a good Shia in, in, in Saddam's Iraq, in Sunni Iraq, was a Shia who didn't act as Shia, didn't claim to be Shia, hmm. didn't demand Shia things. Uh, it, it only it, it, he could and Shias could go up only so far, right. and that was only after they really uh, severed any ties or any representation with their community. And still, over the years, things got worse and worse for Shias. So, the, when the United States arrived in Iraq in two thousand three, it essentially uh, uh, shattered the Iraqi state, which is the which was an apparatus that was simultaneously sectarian in its nature but also was preventing sectarianism from spreading into the streets. Okay. Uh, with no authority there and f- with Washington being completely ill-prepared for this, you, you had this sort of, uh, the violence came out. But, uh, you know, I- in other words, Iraq went from a, a, a forced disequilibrium, from a political system that di- did not reflect its numbers and was forcibly keeping a situation in place, it has to go to an equilibrium. But the period in between this transitory period inevitably ended up being extremely violent and it may be unnecessarily violent because of absence of preparation for it. Mm-hmm. So Iraq from went from being a Sunni-dominated minority country, sometimes brutal, sometimes not, now to a country that's actually being ruled by its majority. And this is not the first time when India... Uh, partitioned under the British, when the British left India, India for uh, many centuries before the British arrived was a Muslim minority uh, empire. The Muslims, the minority of Muslims ruled over a majority of Hindus. When the British left, uh, it was very clear that India would be a Hindu majority country. Right. And the, many Muslims, like many Sunnis in Iraq, were not reconciled to that. And whether there was intermarriages, whether they had done business together, whether they had liked one another, whether they had hated one another, in the end was inevitable. Uh, in fact, India tore apart. Right. Uh, Pakistan separated. Maybe upwards of a million people died or lost their homes in that crisis. It was probably the world's most uh, uh, horrendous uh, human disaster, which, was, uh, which makes actually Iraq look like uh, child's play. Mm-hmm. But it was the same problem. Uh, the fact that a, a, a forced minority rule does not easily go to a majority rule uh, without some kind of a cataclysm. Mm-hmm. And uh, we went to Iraq not thinking at all about uh, 
that this may well happen. And that's exactly the, the problematic, that we went in thinking democracy, we went in thinking uh, extremism versus moderation. We, we thought about everything other than the fact that the single most important consequences of our, of our intervention would be to, to force Iraq to go through that transition from minority rule to majority rule. And that has always been a, 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 an extremely disruptive and messy and violent process whenever it's happened in the world. And, and, and Iraq was not going to be an exception. And perhaps especially dramatic and difficult um, when the minority-majority divide is, falls along lines of religious identity. Yes, and I think in the case of Iraq, it's more important because it also elicited response from everybody else, uh, not only in the neighborhood around Iraq, mm-hmm. but also the larger Muslim world. Uh, for people in Indonesia or Nigeria, this was a shock because they don't have Shias there and uh, that, that this kind of a schism existed uh, and that it could be so violent was something new. I, mm-hmm. I, when, when I wrote my book on the Shia revival, I would travel to f- these kinds of places farther from the Middle East. And sometimes, often I heard this, that we really didn't understand that, that this existed. Really? Or that, that, that uh, it you know, mattered in, the, in that way, or that it could matter in that way? I, and, even, and even that they did really, and in, uh, I mean, I've heard this in, from Indonesians, from Malaysians, that we really don't know even what Shiism is. Really? We're as clueless as Westerners were. Huh. This was some, you know, some distant thing. Uh, uh, and then closer to uh, uh, around Iraq, uh, it, you know, in the Arab world and Iran, where you do, you do have uh, a, a historical legacy of Shia-Sunni coexistence as well as conflict. And uh, you have the same kind of minority-majority divisions in many countries. Uh, this very quickly, Iraq very quickly became much bigger than Iraq. Mm-hmm. It became a, 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 a much re- broader regional dynamic. I mean, it's not a coincidence that uh, even the sectarian war in Iraq had not even begun uh, when the king of Jordan began talking about a Shia crescent. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about what you, know, what you call the Shia revival and some of this larger dynamic. Now, I mean, would you say that that began with the Iranian Revolution? Yes, it did. Uh, But it never went anywhere. First of all, because the Iranian revolution never uh, proclaimed itself to be a Shia revolution. It benefited from Shia support. You you say that it really represented a major break in Shia history, that Ayatollah Khomeini was not representative of... um... Right. But but that has to do mostly with with the internal dynamics of whether he has a right to... Uh, claim uh, the mantle of political leadership. I mm-hmm. mean, this doctrine that he had of the rule of the Juris Consult or Velayat Fari really does not have historical or, or theological roots in Shiism. Right. But 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 once he took over power in Iran, uh, you know, he never fashioned himself to Saudis, to Pakistanis, to you know Indonesians, Malaysians, Nigerians as the Shia leader. He always wanted to be recognized as an Islamic leader. Okay. And that, uh, so he never openly uh, advocated the cause of the Shia. Secondly, he was Iranian and the revolution was Iranian. And that always immunized the Arab world uh, for, uh, from the influence that Khomeini could have. 
And uh, thirdly is that the uh, Arab world found a way, whether through Saddam's war against Iran or through propaganda, to contain Khomeini's influence. So the Arab world learned revolution from Khomeini, but would not accept Khomeini as their leader. Okay. But Iraq was different because in Iraq, you did not have a, 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 an Islamic revolution in Iraq. You, you had a community, a Shia community, openly saying that as Shias, they now claimed power. Uh, they, they very clearly were not trying to wage a larger Islamic ish, cause or Islamic movement. They basically wanted uh, a, a transfer of power from a minority community to the uh, majority community. Mm -hmm. Now, in that sense, I think Iraq was more important than Iran because... There are many other Arab communities which have the problem of Iraq. Namely, the Lebanese Shias believe that they are far larger in numbers than Sunnis or Maronites, but their power in the parliament or their, their representation in the cabinet is far less than them. Or in Bahrain, you have 75% uh, of the population Shia, but has very little political uh, representation or, or, or uh, voice. Okay. In Saudi Arabia, the Shias are about maybe 10 to 15 percent, but uh, were virtually not even recognized as Saudis until very recently. And, and therefore, uh, Iraq uh, provided a model for all of the, the Shia communities that, uh, you know, a transfer of power, getting more than what you have is actually possible. Okay. They were not talking the sort of the lofty goals that Khomeini put forward, an ideal Islamic government and world revolution, etc. This was something much simpler, that governments can change, power can be transferred, and uh, that created an expectation of better days and better things to come for the Shias and a sense of anxiety and fear among Sunnis. And okay. that's exactly why the king of Jordan, the president of Egypt were the ones who were the first to uh, uh, raise the alarm bells of a, of, of a Shia march uh, for power coming. Uh, now, I mean, obviously things in Iraq haven't happened in a rosy fashion that the Shias could look at, say, you know, this is going to happen without blood, without suffering. Yeah. The Sunnis are going to hand over power easily. Uh, I think there's been some rude awakening uh, because of the violence in Iraq. But I still think that, you know, Iraq is an extremely powerful example. It's the first Shia state in the Middle East. So, is there, yeah. And so so, so there, there's no way that it would not have uh, a, a sort of jolting impact on the region. And so, you know, one of the things that's so interesting about that is it, it is that uh, <laughs> that is as a direct result of American policy, of the American military intervention in Iraq. And what you're describing are ramifications and implications that are going to continue to echo throughout the Islamic world. Um, that's not at all something that was part of the United States policy, right, or vision for this. Um, but, but it's a reality now. Um, <laughs> it, it is. And actually, the, it, what you see in the Arab world now is, is a denial, which is typical, is a, is a denial of reality. And so now it, 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 there is a, all kinds of conspiracy theories that the U.S. deliberately created the sectarian conflict, and it, it is part of its grand design of dividing uh, Iraq. 
which is, I, I, I think it's not true because it's it, it would mean denying the, the, the fundamental reality, historical reality of this schism, mm -hmm. uh, the, the, the violent sectarian history of Iraq even before the Americans exist, and also denying the fact that the Shias reacted or had ambitions or had desires uh, that, uh, you know, were not created by the Americans. I mean, right. uh, nobody needed to tell Ayatollah Sistani or Muqtada al-Sadr or Iraqi Prime Minister Nouri al-Maliki that they are Shias, that they had suffered, and now there was an opportunity to have a lot more than would have ever been possible <laughs> under uh, a Sunni-dominated uh, Ba'athist regime uh, in, in Iraq. Now, the, 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 the problems uh, uh, for the United States is that now it's very difficult for the U.S. to rise above the fact that it created a mess in, the, in Iraq and uh, it's not been able to provide a solution to it. The second problem that it brings to the fore is that everything we did in Iraq uh, uh, was, was uh, harmful or was viewed as harmful by our allies, which are the Arab countries around Iraq. Okay. And the one country that benefited from what happened in Iraq is Iran, which the United States does not have good relations with. So, so this whole, whole dilemma right. of what's unfolded in Iraq is that... Uh, Say some more know, about that, because see that again, that, that, what you're saying, that, that Iran, in fact, as a regional power, uh, um, has benefited from what has happened in Iraq... Is, is ironic because through this experience, through the same period, Iran has been seen to be more and more an enemy of the United States um, in terms well, of that, the Well, that's a consequence. No, you're absolutely right. And that's really a consequence of, of, of uh, a, a fundamental problem in the West of not having a realistic picture of the Middle East and the Muslim world. I mean, if you, if you sort of imagine uh, Iraq as a uniform, unified country that is always inevitably part of the Arab world and that somehow you're going to change its regime and the regime that you're going to bring to power is going to be accepted and embraced by its Arab neighbors and it's going to, uh, and it's going to be a threat to Iran, then uh, you were in for a shock uh, because not only the Arab governments were not enthusiastic about a democratic Iraq, but they very well understood that uh, uh, tinkering with Iraq's government would bring the Shias to the power. And Shias will be more friendly to Iran than uh, Saddam ever was. Right. And the Iranians also understood that uh, any kind of a shift in regime in Iraq would bring their friends to power in Iraq. And Iraq would be more friendly to Iran than it ever was under Saddam. It seems like everybody knew this other than the United States. Hmm. Uh, so what, what we did is that uh, when we went into Iraq, the fun as I mentioned, the most fundamental consequence of our intervention in Iraq was to change the balance of power between the Shias and Sunnis. Mm -hmm. And that globally, immediately... Globally, mean, really. I mean, not just regionally, but globally. Well, first within Iraq. Right, but that right. immediately decided how the rest of the region was going to array against Iraq mm -hmm. uh, and react to it. So uh, uh, in a way, it was completely... It's like putting a bowl in water. It's impossible that it won't come out wet. There was no way of intervening in Iraq without making sectarianism a focal point of Iraqi politics and then, by, by extension, Middle East politics, and as you mentioned, globally. Mm -hmm. And we really have not been able to rise above that uh, until now. I mean, just uh, re very recently, uh, the King of Jordan is the first, first Arab head of state to visit Iraq. That's uh, 
about five years after the U.S. invasion. Uh, Iran, Iranian leaders have been visiting Iraq almost from day go. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very clear as to uh, the fact that uh, uh, the Arab world has viewed what's happened in Iraq with far more trepidation and worry uh, than Iran has. So you talk about the dominant political values of the old Middle East. And I think that, that, when you, that what you're referring to there is the Middle East that we in the West think we know. Um, that, that that is connected with Arab identity, with Arab nationalism. Um, and, and that's another way of describing how events in Iraq and their ramifications for Iran are completely shifting that map of the world around. Um, which I wouldn't say has necessarily been a comfortable map, but it was a known world. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. In other words, um, uh, you know, Iraq, uh, um, the the Iraq war uh, had had a consequence of, I think, shifting a lot of power and a lot of uh, um, importance away from the Arab world towards non-Arab actors. Uh, I mean, mm-hmm. this also includes Turkey, which has become a far more important player in Middle yes. East politics because of Iraq. We gave birth in Iraq. The United States was the midwife to the emergence of another non-Arab political entity, which is the Kurdish Republic, uh, se- uh, part of northern Iraq, which potentially can become an independent state right. as well. The Kurds are the fourth most important uh, population group in the Middle East, the one with, which until now had no political uh, representation in the form of a state or a territory, now it has. And then also uh, uh, the Iraq war empowered Iran, not just because the Shias took over Iraq, but also because the Iraqi army fell apart, right. uh, because uh, Iran found a real uh, foothold in, uh, in southern Iraq. Uh, uh, Iran went from being threatened by Iraq for over five decades to now uh, essentially running the show in Iraq by and large. And uh, uh, also a lot of the U.S. attention now shifted to containing Iran. So it's very clear that Iran uh, has become far more important than it was in 2003, that the Kurds have now become a big player in the Middle East and that the Turks have become an important player in the Middle East. So the vision of the Middle East essentially being the Arab world with mm. sort of uh, Iran and Turkey, et cetera, being irrelevant and that all we needed to do was to manage the Arab world. And, and to manage the Arab world, all you need to do is to be involved in the Palestinian issue and to subsidize dictatorships uh, is no longer will give us everything we want. It will give us only part of what we want. But it still leaves uh, important parts of the Middle East to be dealt with, like dealing with the Kurds and dealing with the Iranians. And we're finding it very complicated because dealing with the Kurds and dealing with the Iranians now also complicates how do we deal with the Arabs. And mm-hmm. how do we deal with the Arabs complicates how do we deal with Iran and the Kurds. And that also and, partly gets back to this fact that the Arabs are majority Sunni and you, you have this rising Shia dynamic, right, in Iraq and Iran. And that's... Well, at least the face of the Arab world, which is the governments that sit in power mm-hmm. are all Sunni. It's mm-hmm. not true of the populations. But, you know, we, we, we sign an agreement with the Bahraini government. To us, it's a, uh, you know, it's a Sunni monarchy. We don't sign a government deal with uh, to to have a U.S. base, a military naval base, with the majority seventy seventy five percent of the Bahraini population. Mm. So the Arab world is 
the, the, the political face of the Arab world with which Washington interfaces is still Sunni, mm-hmm. irrespective of where, uh, what's happening with the population. Even in Lebanon, the United States became staunchly defendant, de- uh, the staunch defender of a minority Sunni government. Uh, and uh, so, so that's, that's a reality. But, but I think where, where, uh, where, where the problem in, in the West is, is that uh, the model of the 1990s, etc., where you, you needed to only deal with these Sunni-dominated, uh, su- with this Sunni face of the Middle East, with these presidents and kings, mm-hmm. through patronage or through the Arab-Israeli issue, and that would allow you the run of the field in the Middle East, is no longer the reality. Uh, but I don't think Washington has really updated its uh, uh, outlook on the Middle East to address reality. So the reality is far more complicated and is far more non-Arab. But uh, the Washington still uh, behaving as if it's dealing with the Middle East of 2002. So in the Middle East of 2008, Egypt is not a player in Persian Gulf, is right, not a player right. in Iraq. It doesn't really matter to at least two very important conflicts that matter to the United States, which is the Iraq war and the Iran nuclear issue. Uh, but, the, the, uh, but the way the United States still approaches uh, Middle East issues is as if it's dealing with the Middle East of the 1990s or up to 2003, where all you needed to do was to have a firm, uh, uh, uniform, you know, seamless relationship with the Mubarak regime in Egypt, right. and that would allow you to handle the Middle East period. So... You know, I want to get back to the religious dynamic a bit, and I I think it has been easy um, for some people in this last decade to look at what's happening in the world and and say that that the religious dynamics and religious identities that are embedded in these these different um, alliances and conflicts make everything worse, that religion has become the problem, that religion is the problem of the 21st century, like, I don't know, ideology was the problem of the 20th century. And I, I wonder how you um, think about that, how you respond to that idea as, as, as a Muslim um, and as someone who's... Well, you know, at one level, uh, I think it's a simplistic view of looking at the Muslim world, because mm-hmm. it's true that the text, and by this I mean uh, religious ideas, values, piety, matter a lot to the Muslim world. And maybe they shouldn't, and maybe that's not a good uh, approach. But, you know, uh, text only matters and is interpreted in a context. And the problem uh, in the West is that it's very easy to criticize the text and criticize the people who follow the text. But I think uh, it is equally it's equally legitimate to criticize the West for ignoring the context in the Mm -hmm. Muslim world. Mm -hmm. And we're not going to get the Muslim world right unless we understand the relationship of the text to the context in the Muslim world, which goes back to even your very first question about, you know, why is extremism uh, prevalent in this region or or what role it plays? Mm -hmm. At another level, we could say that, you know, generally... uh, uh, Religion is resurgent not just in the Muslim world, but also in the United States, also in Israel, also in India. In fact, if we really looked at it, Europe alone is the secular world. Right. 
uh, and and you, we could say that uh, the issue is not the rise of religion in the Muslim world, uh, but that we have a crisis of secularism, of the post-enlightenment assumptions about secularism everywhere. That increasingly populations are uh, resort or are turning to religious values, and uh, are bringing religious values into the public sphere. They are challenging the constitutional boundaries that had guaranteed secular society's survival, even in the United States, mm-hmm. on a continuous basis. Now, the U.S. Constitution may be stronger to resist such encroachments. The Turkish Constitution or the Indian Constitution or the uh, you know, Tunisian Constitution, what you, ha- what you may have, may be far weaker. But if you look at it at that level, then you know, the Muslim world is not as unique uh, it is uh, really Europe that is now unique. That, uh, <laughs> right. We have to really ask not why Islam is ascendant, uh, not what is wrong with Muslims, but uh, what is wrong with secularism. Why is secularism sick? Hmm. Why is it waning? Uh, particularly in the most advanced country in the world, the United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, why is secularism under siege? Now, in the Muslim world, the question is, why is the rise of religion so political and so violent? And there, as I say, you cannot answer that question without understanding both the text and the context. Mm-hmm. And the context in the Muslim world is very different from the context in Latin America, in the United States, in Europe, etc. You have ongoing wars. You have uh, m- a massive um, uh, um, discrepancies in wealth in distribution of power. You have a a psychosis that has captured the Muslim world for now at least over a century, which comes from its continuously being beaten up by the West, by Israel, by India, by every uh, force that it it encounters, that is falling behind economically, politically, behind the rest of the third world. And all of those are part of the context in which then Islam is interpreted and, and, and worked with. You travel a great deal, and um, you know you've you've noted that just as settlement the settlement of religious conflicts had to mark Europe's passage to modernity, um, so the Middle East will have to achieve sectarian peace before it be- can begin just living into its potential. And I wonder, as you travel um, in many countries, um, if you if you are encountering Muslim clerics or tribal leaders or civilian leaders who are working towards um, different kinds of settlements, towards sectarian peace, and perhaps those kinds of efforts just get buried by the headlines of the latest thing that went wrong, the latest bomb that went off? Well, definitely. The, the, vi- the violence has two impacts. One is, is that it does divert attention, but also it's a reminder of the problem. I mean, uh, say, uh, if uh, three months ago people said, well, you know, the sectarian issue was over, and then you have another bombing in Iraq of uh, of uh, pilgrims going to the Kazemiya mm. shrine in north of Baghdad, then it's a reminder that, no, it is still there. Or, uh, you know, in Pakistan, all the talk is about, uh, uh, you know, the, the, whether, whether the Pakistanis support al-Qaeda or whether they sympathize uh, with the war on terror or are opposed to the United States. And then you have a case where a region of northwest Pakistan with 200,000 Shias is put under siege by the Taliban. Mm. And, uh, it's, uh, and it became a humanitarian crisis. 
you know, so so the the, the, the troubles have 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 uh, have a dual impact. They can sometimes divert attention. Sometimes they can actually uh, bring attention to the problem. But okay. but but I think the issue in the Muslim world is something bigger. The reaction of the Muslim world, particularly of the Arab world, to what happened in Iraq and then what happened in Lebanon when you had a major confrontation between Hezbollah right. and the Sunnis, mm-hmm. is unfortunately denial, which means denying that the problem exists and denying that the problem is local and then b- blaming it on the United States or outsiders for, for, for creating the sectarian problems. And I don't think that's a good beginning. Mm-hmm. Because that uh, really means that sectarian peace is is by it only happens when you can uh, brush everything under the rug, rather than try to deal with the fundamental problem. I mean, Lebanon, I think, is a better better gauge for us to see. I mean, this country did not have a sectarian problem for a very long time. Now mm-hmm. it has a major sectarian problem, and uh, it's, it all war, has to do no. with and it all has to do with distribution of power. So it doesn't mm-hmm. matter how many clerics you get in a room. And how many times the Lebanese say, oh, we live together for so many centuries and we have so much intermarriage. End of the day, unless there is not a recognition that there is a problem and the problem is, comes from the fact that there is an identity division in this society and the distribution of seats in the parliament and in the cabinet do not reflect uh, population distribution. And you have to have a census and you have to have constitutional revisions that gets, gives everybody a fair share of power. You're not going to have a solution. So I think the Middle East has substituted pro, uh, denial for problem solving. Hmm. And so long as that's the case, I'm sorry to say we're going to have uh, a continuous repetition of Iraq and Lebanon until, you know, you have that you have a you have a, a sort of a catharsis in the end, until the problem no longer is a problem. I mean, you can solve problems two ways. You fight it out until the problem ceases to be a problem. One side wins or, you know, things break up, etc. Or you really find a problem-solving mechanism and, pro- and, and sort of platitudes and, you know, just verbal homage to how we all love one another and we really never had a problem before the Americans showed up. Right. It's not that's... a substitute for problem-solving. Mm-hmm. You know, back in 2003... Uh, but but, but, I'm, mm-hmm. but uh, let me just finish with okay. this. That I think what I meant to say is that, you know, when the Middle East arrives, when the Muslim world arrives at that realization that it needs real problem solving, it will do something to its intellectual makeup that can he- help it get to the next level. Do you, I mean, do you see any seeds of that now? Do you see... Can you imagine where that might begin or the kinds of leaders who are out there perhaps... I think it's too it's too soon. You know, you yeah. know, part of the problem is that uh, you know when, when when you have a based on European history, you have a vision of what ought to happen. You try to sort of uh, uh, look for immediate results, yeah. uh, and that, as I said, has always been our problem with the Middle East. We want uh, long historical processes to be fast tracked. Mm-hmm. The reality is that the Middle East is uh, it's not a, it's not a uh, static picture. It's not a still picture. It is a it is a movie. It's, it, it comprises of, of, of a series of pictures and that are unfolding. At any one time we look at it, we don't see the whole movie because we look at only a snapshot of that mm. moving picture. Mm. So, uh, you know, uh, we may not find an, uh, uh, an, an identifiable character maybe for another 10 years. 
or there may not be a major conference of the kind that, uh, you know, brought resolution in Christianity for another 10 years. But that doesn't mean that there is not sort of intellectual fermentation happening. In, 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 in people's minds and, and in some circles, but it not, might not be immediately discernible. After all, we're not that far away from the epicenter of the conflict, which right. is 2003 Iraq. Right. And in historical you know, uh, terms, that's not a very long time. And, and Iraq hasn't even finished. We don't even know mm-hmm. what is the epithet to Iraq yet. Mm-hmm. You know, do, do the Iraqis <laughs> manage... Uh, I'm, I'm just, uh, just yeah. finishing this. Yeah. W- will the Iraqis manage actually to produce a model for the Muslims to build on? Or will they return to civil war and, and prove to us that this will be decided by, by blood and guns rather than, rather than talking? Mm-hmm. I think how Iraq finishes is going to be very important with ha- in terms of deciding how Middle East deals with this. So, you know, back in 2003, I spoke with someone named Ahmed al-Rahim. Do you know him? He was, he's at Harvard, and he'd gone over, um, but he's Iraqi-American, and I believe yes. his n- n- cousin or something was the Iraqi ambassador, and he had gone over... Um, and he'd been brought over by that early coalition provisional authority mm-hmm. and was advising on the educational system. And, I mean, he's a secular Muslim, mm-hmm. um, but he, you know, he said to me, "Why, why aren't the Americans um, starting Muslim chambers of commerce? You know, don't they remember that back in the in the early American Republic, and in fact, into the twentieth century, the fundaments of civil society, even in the United States, often started with religious organizations. You know, and even things like the YMCA and the Rotary Club. Um, and I so, think he's correct. Yeah, I, I, I think I think he's correct. I, I think there's a peculiar thing, is that um, you know. We have, a very, we have a very good system of government, but whenever we go abroad, we, we promote and implement the French one, <laughs> the French system of government. Right. There is no it's reason secular, why, yeah. uh, why when we, when we, liberate, when we uh, uh, defeated the Taliban, uh-huh. we didn't opt for a federal, American federal system uh-huh. that would have given a lot more uh, uh, autonomy to various regions of Afghanistan, hmm. which would have been a far more workable hmm. solution. And why did we insist on creating a French, centralized French model of government in Afghanistan That's interesting. that is now falling apart? No, I heard, think I heard you when we met in New York a few weeks ago. You were ta- weren't you talking to, about the um, middle classes in Iraq and how they, sort of the commercial uh, business people, how they, in fact, have to be and might be a force in countering extremism. Um, well, the evidence of it is in the South. Uh, in other words, uh, where does Muqtada Sadr have his base of support? It's in the slum uh, areas of Basra or Baghdad. Mm-hmm. When, uh, he, he has no support among the shopkeepers in the shrine cities in Najaf and Karbala, who are essentially businessmen right. who want piety, who want Shia power, but they also uh, know that you only can do business and make money if there is peace and security. Right. And uh, uh, they have no support or tolerance for him. Mm-hmm. And it's very clear that uh, people support um, stability and security if uh, it serves their interests. I mean, we again often in the West forget that Muslims, like all people, uh, are interest maximizers. Mm-hmm. That... Uh, Ultimately, you have, to, uh, you have to get them to a point where uh, peace, security, moderation, whatever it is that we want to promote, 
is not just some harangue that we, you know, preach to them, but it's something that, that they would want to pursue based on self-interest. So it's very clear. You, go, you, you look at Algeria, you look at Tunisia, you look at Egypt, you look at Iraq. There is no part of the Muslim world that I've gone to where uh, the, the, the merchant class supports violence, uh, breakdown, and, uh, uh, <laughs> yeah. and, and in, insecurity. Uh, and and also, so, so therefore, uh, you know, they're, they're behaving the same way as uh, any uh, mer- uh, entrepreneurial merchant business class would, would behave, which mm-hmm. is to serve their own interest. Faith is faith, but business is business. Mm-hmm. And just like the Rockefellers found or the early American uh, capitalists found how to create bridges between capitalism and, and faith, uh, so will the Muslim capitalists right. uh, and, you, and, 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 and find ways of being both pious and, being, uh, uh, and also f- supporting the kind of piety that also serves their business interests. The, the violent forces... Don't have a base uh, uh, among the business classes. Okay. They, they have a base among the have-nots, uh, the, the poor. Uh, when you look at the, you know, where Hamas is strong in the Gaza Strip, you have a you have unemployment of exceeding sixty percent. Mm-hmm. Uh, you look at Sadr City or Basra areas where Muqtada Sadr does very well. Unemployment is is around fifty sixty. Uh, percent. Right. Uh, it was known that the uh, the militant Algerian factions recruited uh, youth, uh, unemployed youth in Algiers who were known locally as Hittists, uh, which was a shorthand for people who people of the wall, meaning those who lean on walls all day. They have nothing mm. to do. Mm. So again, you come so, back to extremist religious groups, which are successful because of the political positions they take. Absolutely, because of the political positions they take. There's also another factor about the Middle East. The Middle East is an extremely young place. There's no country I know in the Middle East where the youth is not an overwhelming majority of the population. And youth are, by definition, unstable. They're risk takers. (laughs) They they are much more swayed by uh, simple solutions and idealistic uh, visions of things. Literally every civil war, revolution, democracy movement, violent movement... We've known in recent years can be correlated with uh, a youth uh, surge, hmm. a youth bulge. Hmm. And, uh, you know, the, if you look at, again, the, the number of young people in Gaza Strip, I mean, uh, literally it's a kindergarten. There. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, you look at the number of uh, youth in Iraq. Again, it's a country that is 60, 70 percent young people. You look at the Bangladesh. It's about a country that's around 60 percent youth. You look at Iran, it's about 70% youth. Uh, When you have those kinds of numbers, you could very clearly see what kind of politics would dominate. Youth are generally not promoters of uh, the kind of politics that, you know, older, uh, you know, stable people follow. Right. They they promote unstable politics. It's in their genes. They they, they challenge authority. They take risks. And uh, you know you got to be very watchful of them. Yeah, and that's a it's a it's a uh, it's an uncomfortable position for um, yeah those who are watching and feel uh, and need to form formulate policies. You know, world and you know what I want to ask you only we only have about five minutes. Mm-hmm. 
most of my listeners, there are policymakers who listen to the program, but most of the people listening are are citizens, you know, working mm-hmm. in some sphere, and yet people feel very affected by all of these dynamics that you and I have been um, discussing. I think one of the frustrations of recent years has been how powerless people have felt as things in Iraq have spiraled out of control. And there's a sense of culpability and yet not any idea of what kind of contribution one might make. So, you know, what would you want to say about how just citizens um, who care about these subjects, you know, so, you know, let me just say it this way. What we're talking about, one of the phrases you use is this battle for the soul of Islam. And um, so, you know, some people have said to me, if it really is an internal conflict, there's nothing that an outsider can do but watch and hope it turns out well. I mean, how would what would you want to say about how it might matter or why it might matter that people are uh, informed or engaged? You know, how would you want to talk to people about their response to these issues in the world they're moving into? It's a big question. Well, uh, it's a very good point. I mean, first of all is that, um, you know, Islam is a, is, is a uh, 14th century civilization. It's very complex civilization. It's complex as Catholicism. Or Chinese, I'm sorry, of Christianity or, or, or Chinese civilization. It has a 1.3 billion followers. I mean, the idea that you know, Americans can decide the outcome of a battle for the soul of Islam, or there actually will be a, 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 a nice, neat, and uh, desirous uh, outcome in the short run is, is rather simplistic. Mm-hmm. And I think part of the uh, problem of the Bush administration policy is that he has been promoting these kinds of simplistic views. I think the very first thing we have to do is to disabuse ourselves of this. Okay. Uh, that we're dealing with a, with a world civilization and world civilizations ch- move on glacial pace in unpredictable ways and there is no, no single event or single thing we can do is to alter the outcome. I mean, obviously, we went into Iraq under the false pretense that this is the key to changing the whole soul of Islam and 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 the direction the Muslim world is going. Right. It actually seems like uh, Iraq has uh, done more to change the direction that the United States is going than the United States changing the direction that the Muslim world is going. Hmm. But I think you know, Iraq is a war uh, that that we are in, involved in. Uh, it, it is a it is a uh, a particular. Uh, case that we have to resolve and we have to find closure with and we have to find a way uh, to extricate ourselves uh, from it. Uh, These debates about where the Muslim world goes, how is it going to resolve its um, both the context and the relationship of the text to the context uh, uh, is going to continue uh, beyond Iraq. Uh, And I think one of the issues uh, which is very key in the next few years is, is, is... to separate uh, individual problems that we have to solve, the nuclear issue with Iran, the Arab-Israeli issue, the Iraq war, from uh, somehow uh, assuming that we can decide the outcome of a civilizational change within Islam itself. Okay. Um, and I think the more the United States um, has uh, is sort of a realistic expectations of, uh, of what it can do and what is happening uh, the less frustrated that the, the average American will feel. Uh, and I think just as uh, any people, Muslims, Chinese, I- Indians, 
I think one of the worst things for Americans is uh, to have raised expectation or heightened expectations that are then not met. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the problems with Iraq, where it's not just a matter of blood and treasure we're putting into that country. It is that so much hope was vested on Iraq that it's, not, it's going to be an easy, simple war that is forever going to take care of the Muslim problem. Right. And it's that failure that has left many people feel uh, a great deal of frustration. Right, feeling fearful and powerless. and Fearful, powerless, but also of, of betrayed expectations, mm -hmm. of expectations that have fallen short. Mm -hmm. And then that drives uh, policies that are not wise. That drives policies that are not wise. Mm -hmm. Exactly. I think that, that we, we can have many sober and, and effective policies as are being followed by the, Iraq, by the U.S. military on the ground in Iraq mm -hmm. that are Iraqi-specific and are driven by uh, the rules of the game uh, in the theater of conflict and what makes rational sense in terms of managing specific issues on the ground. Okay. And we do a lot better when we separate things we do from civilizational assumptions and you know, heirs of being able to change the shape of uh, uh, the future for a billion Chinese or 1.3 bill, billion Muslims, mm -hmm. which we clearly will not be able to do. Okay. It's a matter of generations, isn't it? And that's a hard, hard way for Americans to think. It's a matter of generations, and it's also it's a process that uh, it's impossible to control. Yeah. It is almost like uh, trying to control, control the climate. Uh, or to, uh, I mean, civilizations don't change easily, and it's impossible to be able to navigate how civilizations change. Mm -hmm. There's a difference between civilizations and countries and about civilizational change and policy change in a country. Mm -hmm. We can always get an Arab government or a Chinese government to change a policy, mm -hmm. uh, but we cannot change, decide how the Chinese as a, as a people are likely to think and are likely to act and are likely to move forward. Right, right. I think we have to finish, um, do we? I guess I, I, I do want to ask you if, if just very briefly, okay, um, you know, so that's a very sober note to end on, and I think it's probably the only note to end on. I do, I would be curious about, where you look for sources of hope in this, uh, maybe conversations you have, events you know about through your travels that simply aren't on the radar uh, amidst the headlines. Well, I think, you know, you look you, everywhere you go in the Muslim world, uh, the Muslims have very strong opinions about the Arab-Israeli conflict, about U.S. intentions towards the Muslim world. They're very cynical about American intentions. But, but the reality of it is that the Muslims are also uh, pursuing on an everyday basis business, commerce, economy, education. Uh, they are uh, aspiring to do better in the world uh, when given a chance or when things go right. They behave the same way as people everywhere else do. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can go uh, to Dubai and go to any shopping mall and uh, you would see, uh, you know, Arabs behaving just as Americans would do at a mall. <laughs> and I think that's a hopeful thing, that we're not really at some level uh, separated so much by these civilizational religious things we don't understand by, about one another. But, uh, you know, there is a lot that is common between us. And, uh, and that's very clear around the Muslim world, that Muslims want things that are quite understandable by us. They want jobs. They want prosperity. They want a share of power. They want, um, you know, to go places, to get 
to, to, to do well. And uh, I think those are ambitions that we can identify with and we can take heart in that uh, ultimately, uh, you know, it's not the bin Ladens uh, that will set the agenda uh, for a billion people, but it is uh, the same kind of dynamics that Chinese, Hindus, Indians, uh, Americans, Europeans, uh, you know, respond to as well. Okay. All right. This is great. Thank you very I hope much. That's a better note to end on. Yeah. <laughs> well, I might take the sober <laughs> note, but I just wanted to get an option. Um, yeah, I, I'm just, I am very impressed and excited about your work and your ability to pull all these things together and articulate them. Um, so, thank you. Thanks for taking the time for this conversation. Thank you for inviting me. It's wonderful being on the program. Great. Okay, we'll we'll let you know what's happening with this. You've been talking to one of my producers, and you'll hear from them. Absolutely. Okay. Well, it was good talking to you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye.